The love of money is the root of all evil. This is certainly a phrase that most people are aware of, or have at least heard it quoted. Many may not realize that it's actually a quote from the Bible. And it's often misquoted as money is the root of all evil instead of the love of money. And there's a big difference between the two because there's no question that we all need money in order to live, in order to get by in life. It's very expensive these days. And we have a responsibility to earn a living and provide for ourselves and our families. But when the love of money becomes our desire and the driving force in our lives, then evil results. So not only is this subject relevant for us today, but it has been relevant throughout the history of mankind because it's in man's nature that we have a weakness in this direction. You know, on a big scale, we can see how greed corrupts governments and institutions. Countries have gone to war because of greed and the desire for other people's riches. And on a smaller scale, we see how the love of money destroys individuals' lives and families. And much of the violence and the criminal activity in our society today is centered around the love of money. So we're going to look at this subject tonight by first of all looking at the context in which this phrase was used. And then because this is a Bible-based address, we'll look to see what else we can learn from the scriptures on this subject of the love of money and riches. So if we turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, In 1 Timothy chapter 6, we find the place where the Apostle Paul uses this phrase as a warning and instruction to Timothy, who he considered his spiritual son in the faith. So how is the love of money the root of all evil? Well, here's the context. In verse 6, we read, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich, or other translations have those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish or senseless and hurtful lusts or harmful desires, which drown men in destruction and perdition or the idea of ruin, drives men into ruin. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some have coveted after, they have erred, or they've been seduced from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So the appeal to Timothy from Paul is to be content in godliness, and godliness has the idea of holiness, and that's where the Apostle Paul says that there's real gain. To, that's where the real gain is. It's not in money. It's godliness with contentment. So if we put our first slide up here, 
you'll notice that the first part of verse 10, where we read, for the love of money is the root of all evil, it functions as a ground or a cause both backwards to verse 9 and forward for the rest of verse 10. Verse 9 says that those who desire to be rich fall into many foolish and hurtful, harm, hurtful lusts or harmful desires. Notice that the desire to be rich does not produce just one desire, but many. Then Paul says, the desire to be rich has this effect, because the love of money is the root of all evil. The desire to be rich in verse 9 corresponds to the love of money in verse 10. And the many foolish and hurtful desires of verse 9 corresponds to all evil in verse 10. So why does the desire to be rich not just result in one desire for money, but many desires? Because the love of money is the root of far more than we usually think it is. It's the root of many and all evils that men do. Well, how does the love of money do that? Well, because money is really of no value in itself. It's just a piece of paper, as we know. It's a currency. But it's desirable because it can be used and traded for many desires that we have. But one thing it cannot be traded for is God or godliness. So the love of money corresponds to the longing for the things money can buy, but minus God. So verse 9 says, the many desires plunge people into ruin and destruction. And if we look forward to the rest, uh, to forward to the rest of verse 10, we see it is those that have coveted after the love of money that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So just as in verse 9, the many foolish and hurtful desires plunge people into ruin and destruction. So here in verse 10, the coveting after money leads people to pierce themselves through with many sorrows. If you love money, you cannot serve God. And if you cannot serve God, then everything you do is in darkness and related to evil. And the love of money works its destruction by deceiving people to forsake the faith. And faith, if you have faith, there's a certain contentment. Faith is a, a contented trust in Christ and God. And that's what Paul's referring to in verse 6 when he says godliness with contentment is great gain. And you know, the Apostle Paul says, we don't have to look this up, but in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, he says, I have learned in whatsoever situation I am to be content. Faith has contentment in all circumstances because it has Christ. And Christ makes up for every loss. Philippians 3 and 8 says, the Apostle Paul says, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things 
and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. You see, friends, without faith, we live our lives not as an expression of God and Christ's all-sufficiency, but in order to make up for some deficiency that we feel for lack of faith. And Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 that without faith it is impossible to please God. So when people are lured away from the faith by the love of money, only evil comes or faithlessness. And it appears that that's the sense in why Paul used the term all evil comes from the love of money. Perhaps the simplest way to illustrate this is to look at what the Lord Jesus Christ had to say on this matter. And we'll see how the Apostle Paul is emphasizing the same message. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, we read the words of the Lord Jesus Christ where he says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. No man can serve two masters, for he will, for he, either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. And the Greek there is the idea of money. Notice how Jesus uses the term love to describe the choice that people have. We either love God or we love money. And he attaches the idea of serving to that. So, You cannot serve God and money because loving and serving go together as the Lord Jesus Christ has here. So when the love of money is where your heart is, you become a servant to it. You cannot serve God and you become faithless and you put your trust in money rather than relying on what God has to provide. And you may have noticed, we'll go back to that slide in uh, 1 Timothy 6. You may have noticed in verse 7 there that it's a quote from the reading that we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. For we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we can carry nothing out. Many of you are aware that the Proverbs and the Ecclesiastes were written by King Solomon. And other than the Lord Jesus Christ, King Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. So what he has to say on this subject is worth noting. And if we turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we can see the connection to Paul's instruction to Timothy. And I've put the slide up for uh, easy reference. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10, this is reading from the ESV, Solomon says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth 
with his income. This also is vanity or has the idea of its emptiness. It's, it's a useless pursuit. And in verse 13, Solomon continues and he says, I have observed a painful tragedy on earth. Wealth hoarded by its owners harms him. And that wealth is lost in troubled circumstances. Then a son is born and there is nothing left for him. Just as he came naked from his mother's womb, he will leave as naked as he came. And there's the quote from Timothy. He will receive no profit from his efforts. He cannot carry away even a handful. This is also a painful tra tragedy. However a person comes, he also departs. So what does he gain as he labors after the wind? Solomon tells us that those who love money will never be satisfied. There's no contentment. There's always a feeling of wanting more. And furthermore, just like Paul, Solomon tells us that there's much trouble and anguish in one's life. And when death calls, as it always does, your pursuit for riches is all for nothing. You can't take anything with you. It's all temporal. And look at the further instruction of Solomon in the Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 27, reading from the ISV, Solomon says, Those who are greedy for unjust gain bring trouble into their homes, but the person who hates bribes will live. And Proverbs 28 and verse 20 says, A faithful man shall abound with blessings, but he that maketh haste to be rich shall not be innocent. These are words of sound instruction given to us by the wise man Solomon. And we can see how they're connected with Paul's instruction to Timothy. So what we want to do now is we want to take a look at a couple of examples where the love of money played a role in the destruction of the lives of these individuals. Turn with me, if you would, to Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6. And the time period here is when the children of Israel had just crossed over the Jordan River and come into the land of promise. And before them sat the city of Jericho. And the Lord said to them, in verse 2 of Joshua chapter 6, verse 2, And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thy hand Jericho and the king thereof, and the mighty man of valor, and the chapter goes through and shows how they were given precise instructions on how they were to take this city. And part of that instruction is found in verse 17. If you look down to verse 17, we read, And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein, to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in the house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And verse 18 says, And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed. 
when ye take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. Now the word accursed here in the King James Version, it may be a little bit misleading. You may have in your margin the word devoted. And that's the sense of the Hebrew. It's something that was devoted for destruction. Something that should be utterly destroyed. So the city was to be utterly destroyed and everything in it. And just in case there was a temptation to keep some of the valuables in the city, God tells Joshua, if that were to happen, it would bring a curse on all Israel and trouble it greatly. And so as we go through this story, we read in verse 1 of chapter 7, But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, or that which was devoted for destruction. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. So when Israel went out to defeat the next city that lay before them, the city of Ai, they were unsuccessful. And they became very fearful. And Joshua wasn't sure why they weren't blessed with another defeat. And God tells Joshua the reason why they were unsuccessful. In verse 11 of chapter 7, we read there, Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen and assembled also, and they have put it even among their own stuff. And so Joshua is very troubled now. And through a process of elimination, that Joshua goes through, he determines that it was this man, Achan, who had done this thing. And in verse 19, we read there, And Joshua said unto Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the Lord God of Israel, and make confession unto him. And tell me now what thou hast done. Hide it not from me. And Achan answers in verse 20. Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. And this next verse here I'm going to put up on the slide because it helps to illustrate the downward spiral of the deceitfulness of riches. You see here it says, when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and I took them. And behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. And if we go to the end of this chapter and look at verse 24, it says, And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses, his sheep and his tent, all that he had. And they brought them unto the valley of Achor. And verse 25 tells us that they took them out 
and stoned them all that they died. So we see here the digression. Achan says, I saw, I coveted, I took them. Here was a man that got caught up in the moment. He only considered the temporal things and how he might gain from this miraculous victory that God had just given Israel over the city of Jericho. This land that they were in was to be their inheritance. And he disregarded the commandment of God, threw his eternal inheritance away, and he brought destruction to himself and his family, and he caused Israel great trouble as well. That's what can happen when our hearts are deceived by riches and turned away from God. And there's much more we could say about this incident, but we don't have time this evening, so we're going to move on and look at another incident. The next incident that we want to look at is found in 1 Samuel chapter 25. If you turn with me to 1 Samuel 25. And we read there in verse 2 of 1 Samuel 25, And there was a man in Maon whose possessions were in Carmel. And the man was very great. He was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal. So this was a man that was very rich. He had wealth in abundance. And the context of this chapter finds David and his men desperate for some provision. And David, of course, was selected by God to be the king of Israel. And he was anointed to be the king by Samuel. But he was on the run at this time. He was fleeing for his life from King Saul, who was determined to kill him. So David and his men had been hiding out in the caves and in the hills of this area of Carmel. And they're becoming desperate for some food. So when David hears that this wealthy man, Nabal, is in the area shearing his sheep, he sends some men to ask Nabal if he would be so kind as to provide some basic provisions for David and his men. And on the next slide, I'll put up Nabal's response. In verse 10, we read 1 Samuel 25, verse 10, And Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There be many servants nowadays that break away every man from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my flesh that I have killed for my shears and give it unto men whom I know not whence they be? Well, Nabal certainly did know who David was. All Israel knew who David was. But in his arrogance and his selfishness and pride, he wasn't going to acknowledge David or provide anything to David and his men. And not only that, he doesn't even acknowledge that his blessings and his great wealth had been provided by God. And we see the emphasis 
on himself, on me. He says, I, my, 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 I, my, I. It's all about Nabal. And we've probably all come across rich people in this world at some point or another who act just like that. They have an arrogance about them and a brashness. There's a rudeness in their demeanor and they are selfish. Even the servants that worked for Nabal here describe him at the end of verse 17. If you look down to verse 17 at the end there, they describe him as a son of Belial, that a man cannot speak to him. And the expression son of Belial in the Hebrew has the idea of worthlessness. He's a worthless man, and you can't even speak to him. And Nabal's name in the Hebrew means a fool. So when David receives the news of Nabal's response, he's so upset that he sets out to kill Nabal and his whole household. Well, fortunately for Nabal, he had a wise, a wise wife. And she takes it upon herself to counsel David and provide David and his men with the much needed food and provisions that they had asked for. And the wife of this man's, the wife of Nabal, her name was Abigail. And we read in verse 36 what Abigail says to Nabal about this whole incident. In verse, sorry, verse 25, verse 36 of chapter 25, Abigail, Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he held a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunken. Wherefore she told him nothing less or more until the morning light. But it came to pass in the morning, when the wine was gone out of Nabal, and his wife had told him these things, that, look, he was coming to kill you and all your, everything you had, that his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And it came to pass about ten days after that the Lord smote Nabal, that he died. Here's another man that had been drawn away by the love of money and wealth. He would not so much as provide the basic needs for his fellow man from all the wealth that the Heavenly Father had blessed him with. He was selfish, arrogant, full of pride. He thought that he was invincible. He needed nothing. And he had no faith or recognition of God in his life. And his life was taken. And all his possessions were left behind. True to the words of Solomon, his whole life was vanity and emptiness. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ spake a parable about a certain rich man. And it may be that he had this man Nabal in mind. Certainly the same spirit is brought out. If we look at our next slide here, in Luke chapter 12, the Lord Jesus Christ told this parable about a certain rich man. He says, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, 
the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns, and I will build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And consider, we're all familiar with the uh, parable of the sower, the man that went out and he sowed seed on, on different types of ground. Look what the Lord Jesus Christ said about the seed that was thrown, uh, sown in the thorns. In Matthew 13 and verse 22, Christ says, He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. This is the spirit of those who will be lovers of money and it's an empty pursuit. And we could look at many more examples in the scriptures. People like Doeg, people like Haman, People like Judas, who sold the Savior of the world for 30 pieces of silver. Let's, we can see how all the scriptures we've looked at so far, how they all link together and how they're all associated with where we began with the Apostle Paul's instruction to Timothy. And the Apostle Paul provides further instruction to Timothy in his second letter that he wrote to him. In in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, and at verse 1, and I'm reading from the ISV, the International Standard Version, Paul tells him about the godless society in the last days. He says, you must realize, Timothy, however, that in the last days, difficult times will come. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, Boastful, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, unfeeling, uncooperative, slanderous, degenerate, brutal, hateful of what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will hold to an outward form of godliness, but deny its powers. Stay away from such people. You notice how lovers of money is right at the top of the list. And this is very descriptive language of the day and age in which we live. The allurement of riches is everywhere in our society today. And it turns people's hearts away from God. You know, society today, it glamorizes things like gambling and lotteries. It's pumping this stuff at people all day long. 
There's get-rich schemes out there that come up on your computer when you're trying to do other things. You know, this person made... It's just before us all the time. And they're all designed to appeal to our wants and they have nothing to do with our real needs or our eternal inheritance in the kingdom of God. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning, <clears throat> we certainly do need to have money to be able to provide for ourselves and our families. We can't just, we can't just sit back and do nothing and expect to be provided for. The scriptures is full of instruction on the fact that we're not to be lazy or not to be like the sluggard. So it's all about perspective and where our heart is. Consider the perspective, again, that Solomon provides in this regard. In Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 8, we, re we read there, Solomon says, Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee, and say, Who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. Solomon is suggesting that somewhere in the middle of rich and poor provide a proper balance in the love, appreciation, and dependency on God that we should have. If we're too rich, what happens? Well, we may feel like we don't need God in our lives. And if we're too poor, well, we may be inclined to steal and have a resentment towards God. Somewhere in the middle is the proper balance. And if we go back to the chapter that we looked at and we had read in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we read this at the end of that chapter in verse 18, where we read, Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him, for it is his portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth, and hath given him power to eat thereof, and to take his portion, and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. With the proper recognition of where our blessings come from, God wants us to be able to enjoy the fruits of our labors. It's all about our perspective and our appreciation of where our blessings actually come from. And if we go back to Paul's letter to Timothy, in chapter 6 where we began, Paul provides further instruction about those who are rich at the end of the chapter. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, we read there, Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded or arrogant, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God 
who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Here again, we see the same message as Solomon. And Paul says that if we've been blessed with wealth, then be generous to help those who are in need. You know, the Apostle Paul himself, during his travels, he, he set up a fund that was referred to as the Jerusalem Poor Fund. And this is where brothers and sisters who were well off could provide for those who were in need. And we're told that the brothers and sisters, they willingly gave to this fund. They were happy to be able to provide of the wealth that God had given them to help those who were in need. Certainly a much different spirit than what was observed in the man Nabal. And we see the real riches in Christ is life everlasting in the kingdom of God. You know, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he emphasizes over and over the riches that are in Christ and the spiritual blessings that the man of faith receives from the Heavenly Father. And I've put a few up here on the board. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, it says, In Christ we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Well, money can't buy that. In verse 18, he says, The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Ephesians 2, verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Ephesians 3, verse 8, Unto me, who am, am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. There are wonderful riches provided to those who commit their lives to following after the Lord Jesus Christ. The Heavenly Father has promised all those who would seek Him in sincerity and truth the hope of life everlasting in the kingdom of God that will be established on the earth when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. The promise of salvation is an eternal gift of God, and it's far greater than anything this present world has to offer. So hopefully, friends, in this short time that we've had together tonight, you have a little bit better appreciation for what the Scriptures has to say about the love of money and about those who would seek to be wealthy and we see that there is a happy balance when a man puts his faith and trust in what God 
will provide and puts his hope on future things, the kingdom of God, and not the temporal things that this world has to offer. And let us remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he said, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust does corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy at the beginning, Godliness with contentment is great gain. May we trust in God to provide and be content with what we have, looking forward in faith to the promise of life everlasting in the kingdom of God. For our last slide, we'll look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, where we read, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. The ISV has for that verse, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.